following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. And uh, we're going to continue this morning in our series in the Gospel of Luke. So if you've got a Bible this morning, good time to pull that out. If you've got the Bible on your device, you can start that up. We are working our way through uh, the, the middle of the Gospel of Luke, looking at some passages from the ministry of Jesus and some of the teachings of Jesus, some of the miracles of Jesus, uh, some of the interactions that Jesus had with people as he went through his, his ministry years between his baptism and his crucifixion. Today we're in Luke chapter 10. And so as you're turning there, uh, Gria Logue is going to come and read the passage for us this morning. So thank you, Gria. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothing, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took him out to Denary and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you with an extra expense you may have, with any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on, on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Hmm. Thanks, Korea. Right, so... This is, this is one of those stories that's incredibly familiar, isn't it? And I feel like my, my job is difficult from the get-go because you've all heard this before and you're all so familiar with it. And you all think, what's new to hear about the Good Samaritan? You know, like if, you, if you've been around church for any length of time, if, especially if you've been through Sunday school, you heard this story, you've colored in the pictures of the Good Samaritan and you might have seen it acted out and you've heard a thousand sermons on the story. So it's very easy, I think, at this point just to switch off and feel like we know this one, this is, this is done, got this sorted and, and check out. Uh, and I, this is also, interestingly, one of those stories in the Bible, one of the very few Bible stories that has made its way into pop culture because that phrase, Good Samaritan, like we hear that, don't we? Like that's, that's become part of our cultural vocabulary now. And, and a good Samaritan is someone that does any act of kindness for a stranger. Right? That's, that's kind of how we use the phrase today, right? So I heard a news item the other day about a man who had come along and seen a woman mowing her lawns and had stopped and helped and given her a hand mowing her lawns. And so in the news, he's called a good Samaritan. Isn't this guy a good Samaritan? Now, the irony is that the way we tend to use that phrase is completely different 
from the way it would have sounded in Jesus' day. So if you went up to a Jewish person in the first century and said to them, you're a good Samaritan, they probably would have punched you in the nose or they would have wanted to because it would have had a totally different ring about it. It just sounded, this was not a, it was not a compliment. It was an insult and I'll explain why, but it, we have, we've drifted a long way with our use of that phrase to how it sounded in the first century. And part of the punch of the story is how it sounded in the first century. So what I want you to do this morning, if you possibly can, is to try and put aside what you think you know about this story, because we all sort of come with what we already think we know and made up our mind, but try to put that aside for a few minutes. And let's try to enter into this story, try and hear it afresh, try and place it back in its own world in the first century, and let it speak to us from there. Can we do that? Okay, all right, you haven't fallen asleep yet. Let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. All right, so the story begins with Jesus having this interaction with a guy who comes up to him on one occasion. This is verse 25. An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So this expert in the law, some of your translations might even say a lawyer. That's a terrible translation because he wasn't a lawyer, at least not in any modern sense of the word. Uh, I think the best word to describe this guy is he was a theologian. He was an expert in the Old Testament law is what he was. So not a, not a modern day lawyer, but he, he was an Old Testament scholar. He knew the law of Moses. He knew the Jewish law. He knew the scriptures. And so he's coming along to test Jesus. And the fact that he wants to test Jesus tells you something about his motives, doesn't it? So he's wanting to trip Jesus up. He's coming with this antagonistic motive, not to genuinely learn and receive, but to try and get the edge on Jesus, wants to try and prove himself, try and trap Jesus in a question or catch him out in some way. So that's his agenda. That's how this guy is approaching Jesus. So he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Don't you hate when a teacher asks a question in response to a question? You know, the, the best teachers do that, though, don't they? We don't like it, but that's what they do. That's how we learn. So he, the theologian, answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So he's drawing together here two quotes from the Old Testament. One from Deuteronomy 6, it's called the Shema, a very important passage for Jewish people. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Foundational passage in the Old Testament. So he quotes that. And then he joins that with a passage in Leviticus that describes love for neighbor. He puts those two together and he presents that to Jesus as a summary of the law. And that was considered a very robust, very solid summary of everything that the Old Testament says. It is love for God and it is love for neighbor. And Jesus commends him for it in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. And the word correctly is the word orthos from where we get the word orthodox, which means right doctrine. And so Jesus is saying to him, you have good theology. You have correct doctrine. Well done. You got it right. So far, so good, right? But then, in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. In other words, he wanted to get the edge. He wasn't content just to give a good answer. He wanted to one-up 
Jesus, or he wanted to show how smart he was. He wanted to come out on top. So wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? That was a debate within Jewish circles. Who is my neighbor? Is it just my Jewish fellow countrymen? Or does that extend beyond the nation of Israel as well? Who should I show this love to? And it's in response to that question that Jesus tells this story, this well-known story. Now, the setting for this, this story, and it's a parable, it's a fictitious story. The setting is the road that runs from Jerusalem all the way to Jericho. Now, I've got a photo of this road. I don't know whether you can see it there, but this gives you the type of environment we're talking about here. Okay, so don't imagine a big highway. This is, this is a wilderness area. This is the Judean wilderness. It's a desert. It's a completely barren, arid landscape. And this road, I mean, you can see it kind of etched into the hills there, winds its way. It's 25 k's as the crow flies, but because the road winds so much, it's a lot longer than that. It's a treacherous road full of these sheer cliffs and rocky uh, edges and, and twists and turns and hidden corners. It was a pretty dangerous kind of road. And it's also a descending, you see it's a sloping descending road because Jerusalem is about 850 meters above sea level. Jericho is about 250 meters below sea level. So you're going down over the course of your journey. And this was not a pleasant road to walk. It was a pretty dangerous place as well because of all these kind of little, little twists and turns and hideouts and caves and so on. It was a favorite place for robbers and thieves to wait and, and lurk and, and wait for some unsuspecting traveler to come along that they could pounce upon and attack. And even today, you can hike this road. You can't drive it. But even today, travelers in Israel are warned not to, not to hike the road on your own and don't hike it at night for obvious reasons. So it's still known as a place where dodgy people hang out with dodgy motives, just as it was in the first century. So you've got this traveler who's making the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's walking this road. And as he walks, sure enough, he falls into the hands of robbers. And they strip him of his clothes. They beat him up. They take anything that's valuable of his, and they just leave him lying on the side of the road half dead. So he's in a terrible situation. He's injured. He's, he's helpless. He can't get himself to safety. He can't get himself to help. He needs someone. He desperately needs someone to come along and help him and give him some assistance and care for him. And so then down the road come these two characters. First of all, a priest comes down the road. Now, the fact the priest was coming down the road suggests that he was coming from Jerusalem to Jericho, which suggests that he had just finished his shift at the temple. This priest probably is coming home from the temple, having just done his duty. And he sees this guy lying there on the side of the road, but instead of stopping to help him, he crosses over as much as he could cross over, gives the guy a wide berth, goes around him, and carries on his journey. Probably what was in the priest's mind is that he did not want to be contaminated and become ritually unclean. Because in the Old Testament, it says if you touch a dead body, you become unclean, ceremonially unclean for seven days. So the priest's thinking, well, if I, I don't, this guy could, be, could already be dead, or he could die while I'm with him, and then I'm contaminated, I'm ritually impure, then I can't do my duty at the temple for the next week, I'm going to have to you know, self-isolate, and then I'm going to have to come back after a week and try again, it's going to be a huge hassle. I don't want any, I don't want any of this. I'm, I'm just going to try and move, move past and kind of pretend this never happened. So off he goes. And then you have this Levite who comes along. Levites also worked in the temple. They're kind of more the operational management guys. The Levite comes along. He's probably thinking exactly the same thing. 
If I touch the sky, I'll be unclean. I don't want to go there. And so he too goes around the man, crosses over and goes past him. And then in verse 33, have a look at this. This is where the story turns. Here's the climax of the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, we read that and we think, what a good Samaritan. What a guy. What a lovely guy. What a hero. Yes? For the people listening to this story, that would have been shocking. You've got to feel that. For the people that first heard this, they would have been shocked. What do you mean a Samaritan? Well, this is supposed to be, then a good Jew came along and showed pity on him. That's how the story is supposed to go, Jesus. Don't you know these things? But Jesus tells it differently. He says, then a Samaritan. The Samaritans and Jews hated each other. They were enemies. They'd been enemies for centuries. This old historic thing going back ages and ages. And the Jews considered the Samaritans these outcasts and half-castes. And they'd intermarried with, with pagan people. And they really weren't Jews at all. They were just kind of, they had no share in Israel's inheritance. They were filthy, dirty, unclean dogs. And they just deserved nothing. The Jews could not stand the Samaritans. So to say the good Samaritan would be like us saying the good terrorist or the good meth dealer or the good gang leader or you know whatever category of person you pick who you think is a really nasty person, just try putting their name or their description in instead of Samaritan and you'll start to get the feel for what this sounded like to Jesus' listeners. This was not a good person. This was a despised person. And yet Jesus says, this is the guy. This is the guy who actually shows what the love of God looks like in the story. You hear how uncomfortable that is? So the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and as he saw him, he took pity on him. Literally, he was moved with compassion. Isn't that what God wants from us? That we would be moved with compassion. And instead of walking past, he walks across the road and he goes to where this man is. And he bandages up his wounds. He deals with the man's injuries, all the blood and the scars and the mess and the agony this man was in. And he pours oil and wine on these wounds. That's just what he happened to be carrying. Oil and wine were kind of considered to be aids to, to medicine and they help the healing process. And so he, he uses some of that. And then he puts the man on his own donkey. So now the Samaritan's got to walk. He's got to try and lead his donkey along that road. And he takes the man to an inn. And I mean, this is not, it's not the Hilton. This is like some dirty old truck stop, probably on that kind of road, isn't it? This is a filthy sort of place. Takes him to some dodgy inn just to find lodging for the man. And then he says to the innkeeper, now you take care of him. I've got to go do some business. I'm going to come back and I'll pay you whatever is required. I will pay you for any extra expense you may have. So he basically writes him a blank check. I mean, how financially irresponsible is that? This man's leaving himself wide open for financial abuse. Could have been taken advantage of by the victim or by the innkeeper, right? Didn't know either of these guys, but he says, look, just it's an open account. You look after him and you come back. I'll settle the tab. And then Jesus ends the story there, but he turns back to the theologian 
And he says to him, now, which of these three, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man in need? Do you see how the question that the theologian asked and the question that Jesus asks don't quite match up? Do you see that? The theologian asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus asks, who was a neighbor? See, the theologian is interested in the object of the action. Who should I show love to? Jesus is not interested in that. He's interested in the subject of the action. Are you willing to be the one who shows love to others? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, doesn't matter who the subject is. Doesn't matter who the object is. Doesn't matter who the person is that you're showing love to. Doesn't matter if they're a Jew or a Gentile or someone close or someone you don't know or someone deserving of it or someone not. Doesn't matter who they are. You love without distinction. What matters is, are you the kind of person who's willing to go and be a neighbor? Are you willing to embody the love of God? Are you willing to show that kind of neighbor love to others unconditionally and compassionately? Are you willing to go? Are you willing to do that? And who in the story did that, Jesus asks. And so the theologian in verse 37, the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. Just says that guy. That, that one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. It's an amazing story, hey? And I think when you can, when you can hear that enmity between Jews and Samaritans in the first century, that's the impact that the story would have had. And it just helps to deepen the meaning that we get out of it. And at the end of that story, you notice that we don't know how that theologian responded. This is just like the story we looked at last week. You remember that? And so this, Luke does this. In his gospel, he, Jesus has these interactions with people, but then we don't know how it ends. I mean, we know how this, this good Samaritan parable ends, but we don't know how the theologian responded. Did he, did he humble himself? Did he decide to go and do likewise? Or did he keep trying to justify himself to Jesus and keep trying to get the edge on Jesus? We don't know. And that's a deliberate tactic on Luke's part, a literary device that Luke uses to draw us into the story because then it forces you to ask the question, well, how am I going to respond? Because this is not just a story 2,000 years ago about ancient people in ancient times. It's a story about us. It's a story about people around us today. And so we're, we're being asked, well, who are you in the story? Who do you identify with in that story? Where can you see yourself? Where would you have been on the road that day? Who are you in this broader parable, this passage that Jesus is teaching on? I think a lot of the time we can be a bit like that theologian. And I think especially at Shaw, I think we can be a bit like this. I can definitely see myself in that category. Not that I'm a great theologian, but I can see myself sometimes doing what he did. It's interesting that Jesus uses that word orthos to describe that theologian because he was a man who was orthodox. And I think we place a big emphasis on that, don't we? We want to be orthodox. We want to have right doctrine. We want to have correct theology. We're very concerned to make sure that our beliefs are right, our doctrine is right, and our theology is right. But I think part of what Jesus is saying here is what's the use in all that good theology if you don't live it out? If it doesn't actually affect the way that you treat others and if there's no love for neighbors, what, what, what's good? What, what, what use is all your good theology? Remember we talked last week about loving God from our hearts? You know how, how important that is? To love God, not just with our heads, 
as some of us are so good at doing, but loving him with our hearts, which many of us are not so good at doing. And you notice again, as as Jesus interacts with this man, that scripture, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's right there. Like love for God is so central. That's so vital. That's so important. But the natural result of loving God should be what? Loving our neighbors. If we love God, if we claim to love God, we should love the ones God loves, should we not? And who does God love? Everyone. If we claim to love God, see in Scripture, love for God and love for neighbor, they go together. They, just, uh, they are woven together time and time again. We love God, we love neighbor. We love God, we love our neighbor. They're just interwoven. In fact, to the point where if you're not loving your neighbor and there's absolutely nothing in you that wants to love your neighbor, you sort of have to come back and question, well, how's my love for God? Because if I really love God, I'm going to love the ones God loves particularly those who are broken and hurting and in need of some compassion, love for God and love for neighbor go together in the Bible. Now, I know that when we start talking about this, we start talking about, well, what does that mean? What are we, we're loving my neighbor. It feels like this big thing, doesn't it? feels like this really big kind of thing and it's sort of a little bit daunting, I think, for those of us that are already really busy people who have really hectic schedules and already feel quite tired, we sort of wonder, what are you asking of me here? What is this going to require of me? Are you, are you talking about spending five hours a week at the Auckland City Mission? Is this going to require a day of my week at a homeless shelter? What am I doing here? Am I volunteering for victim support? What are, what, what are you going to ask of me? Where's the big ask? What, what is coming down the track? And sometimes we excuse ourselves from this because we feel like, well, I don't have a whole lot more hours to give in my life. I'm already jammed. You know, I've got no margin at all. I can't take on a whole lot more commitments. But just look at what happened with this Samaritan. Just have another look here in verse 33. Look how the story is told. Look at the detail of it. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled. If you've got a pen, underline just those three words. As he traveled. So this Samaritan, he's going somewhere. He was actually on his way somewhere. Where was he going? Kmart? I don't know. McDonald's? To the dentist? Visit a friend? We don't know where was he going. He was going somewhere. He wasn't walking down the road to find that guy. He was just going about his life. He was doing his thing. But then as he traveled, he came across this guy. And in that moment, he made a decision. I'm not going to look the other way. I'm not going to ignore this. I'm not going to rationalize why I shouldn't have to help. He had five good reasons not to, but he doesn't do that. Instead, what does he do? He moves towards him. He crosses the road and he chooses to show love. I think this is the point Jesus is making. This is not about adding a whole lot more stuff onto your already busy life. Now, you may choose to do that, and there may be some specific calling and organization and need and so on, but this is just about as we travel, right? As you're traveling. As you're traveling through your day today. As you're traveling through your week. As you're traveling through this year. Who are you passing by? That's the primary question. 
Who are you passing? A lot of this is just about awareness, isn't it? Is raising our awareness. Because we're just so focused on the next thing and getting to where we've got to go and sorting out the things for the day. But what about just as we travel, having the eyes to see the people around us? Who are you passing by just in your travels, right? Who's in your world? Who's already there? Who's, who's on your street? Who's in your school? Who's in the broader community of your school? Who's on the campus that you're on? Who's in your workplace? Who's in the community of your sports club? Who's in your social media community? Who are the people who are already there who may be hurting, who may be struggling in some way, they're facing some difficulties, they're facing some tough times, and it's easy to ignore it, it's easy to leave that on the margins, but in that moment you face that decision. I'm passing them by. Now what am I going to do? Am I going to keep going? Or am I going to pay attention to that need? Am I going to move towards that need? Am I going to do something? Am I going to stop Am I going to help? Am I going to show the love of Christ? I remember a guy was challenged by this story just to simply learn the name of the people that cleaned his office every night. Simple as that. He was challenged, I think, by someone talking about this story, and he thought, you know, my office gets cleaned every night. I don't even know who those people are. I'm just going to start by learning their name to start by figuring that out. And so he did, and he figured it out, and he actually built a friendship with the person who cleaned his office every night. And that friendship developed to the point where this man's family had that person's family around to their house for Christmas just because he took some initiative and started asking that question, who's in my world? Who am I traveling by? And where might the needs be? I remember after the Christchurch mosque attack a couple of years ago, uh, there was a group of, of Muslim people in, on, the, on the North Shore who we'd had a little bit to do with because a few of them had visited Shore a couple of years before that. And so after the attacks happened in that following couple of weeks, I just texted one of the women connected to that community and just checked in with her, asked how she's doing and asked if we could just bring something around. And so Anna and I just took around some flowers to her place and she wasn't even home at the time. We just dropped it on her doorstep and that was that. But she was amazed. She was amazed that she, that her family and her community would be showing that kind of compassion. And then Easter came along and she brought around a huge thing of Easter eggs for our family. So our boys loved that. That was fantastic. That completely won them over. Not to Islam, but you know, to, <laughs> just to the Easter eggs, really. Just to chocolate. But that for me, as I think back about that time, that was me wrestling with that question at that particular time. What does it mean now for me to love my Muslim neighbour? Now, I think there was a lot of fear attached to that question for Christians in New Zealand because I think we worried we were giving up something by doing that. I think we worried that we were selling out to Islam by doing that. I didn't feel like I was selling anything out. I didn't feel like I was giving up any of my convictions by showing that compassion. I felt I was living out my convictions. I thought I was doing exactly what Jesus would have done of showing love without distinction. And I'm not great at this. I'm no shining example of it. But I'm just saying, I don't think we have to fear these kinds of things. Otherwise, isn't that a reflection on the weakness of our own faith? You're not tacitly endorsing a belief system by showing compassion to an individual or a family. You're just showing the love of Jesus to them. See, I think the thing is, it's maybe easier to practice this kind of neighborly love towards people that we like or people who are like us. It's more difficult, isn't it, when it's people who aren't like us. That's where it gets hard. People who are different to us. I mean, it's kind of easy to love each other. 
You know, within the community, I think we do a pretty good job of that here within the church. When it gets to those people, those others out there, especially those who don't share our faith or perhaps don't share uh, the same culture as you or who are just different people to you. You know, some people, let's be honest, they're difficult to love. What about those people? What about the people that just don't reciprocate it or don't seem that grateful? I mean, it's easy to help someone when they're really grateful and they're appreciative of it. But what about when people aren't? What about those people that are just really annoying? Those people that frustrate you. People are, people are messy, right? I mean, this guy on the side of the road, he was messy. He was probably difficult to help, difficult to love in some ways. What about loving people who only have themselves to blame for their problems? That's yeah, a hard one, isn't it? People that, well, you say, well, you've already made a series of bad decisions that has got you into this place, right? So you're the maker of your own demise. And we can write them off because, well, you, you know, you're, You've only got yourself to blame. You could say exactly the same thing about the guy in this story. He chose to walk down a dangerous road. He chose to be on his own. What was he thinking? The Samaritan could have thought exactly that and could have thought, this guy has just got himself into a mess. Somebody else will help him. I've got no reason to do that. But instead of judging him and instead of finding all the reasons not to and writing that off, he just decided to love unconditionally. It's not about asking why they got themselves into this situation and I don't need a help because they're part of the problem. It's just about showing the unconditional love of Jesus. Now, I know, of course, we want to help people to become healthy individuals and not give endless handouts. We want to help people stand in their own two feet. I'm all for that. I'm just saying sometimes I think we can use people's own failures as an excuse not to love. And I just wonder what would happen if God had done that to us. If God had looked at us that way, and he could have, right? He could have looked at us and said, well, you are the maker of your own demise, aren't you? You've got yourself into this mess. So this, I actually think this is the most beautiful thing about this story. As I read the parable of the Good Samaritan, I don't think that Samaritan just represents who we're supposed to be. I think he represents Jesus. You think about that. Jesus was the one who came to us when we were lying half dead on the side of the road, didn't he? dead in our own sins and transgressions, having made a complete mess of our own lives and continuing to do so. And yet Jesus didn't look the other way and cross the other side of the road. He could have. He would have had a thousand reasons to do that, right? Not to notice, not to care or to justify why we should just be left in our own mess. But instead, Jesus walked across the road to us, showed incredible kindness, was moved with compassion he came to us and bandaged us by his grace and poured the oil and the wine of his grace on our wounds. And he carried us on his own back and he paid for our healing with his life. And he did that so that we could be free. We are all that guy lying at the side of the road. And Jesus has shown such unconditional, immeasurable love for us. And now he says to us, as those who I've cared for, now that you are those who I've had such incredible compassion upon, could you go and do likewise? Could you show just a little bit of the care that I've had for you to people around you? 
Could you show just a little bit? And we don't do that to try and earn some points with God or give ourselves some standing before God. Nothing of that nature. We, we are accepted unconditionally by God. But out of that incredible love, just out of gratitude for all that Jesus has done for us, now we look around and we say, well, how can I love my neighbor? Because, man, isn't that what Jesus has done for me? And so who is it this week? It's just a simple question. Who is your neighbor this week? Who are those just in your world and the periphery of your life that maybe God is just nudging you and saying, that person, they're there and they're facing a tough time. I want you to be the one to go. Don't wait for someone else. Don't wait for the priest and the Levite. You be the one. You be the one to stop and take notice and go. Someone who's having a difficult time someone who could just do with some encouragement, someone who needs some practical care, someone who just needs your presence this week, just needs you to show up and just be there, not saying anything in particular, but just being there for them. Who is that person? Just ask God to place it on your mind. Are you willing to go? Are you willing to love them? Are you willing to go and do likewise? We want to be those who love the Lord our God with all our heart, and soul, and mind, and strength. And God also calls us to be those who love our neighbor as ourselves. So let's go and do likewise. Let's pray. So God, now I'm, just, I'm conscious and I know myself how easy it is to hear this and hear your word, and we go and we do nothing about it. And I know how easy that, that is for me, for each of us, God. And we're just like that theologian who we... We want to get the good teaching, God, but then so often it's not taking hold in our hearts and it's not changing our lives. And God, we just want to ask you this morning to forgive us for all those times we have walked past others in need and we've been the priest and we've been the Levite and we haven't cared and we haven't stopped and we, and, and we haven't even noticed half the time that that's happened. And God, when we start to think about all that you've done for us, we're just humbled by that. But Lord, we, just, we don't want to stay in a place of self-pity. Lord, you don't want us to feel guilt and condemnation. You renew us and you set us back on our feet. And now you say, okay, go and do likewise. So even now, Holy Spirit, we want to ask that you just drop into our minds the names, drop into our minds the faces, people who we know, maybe people whose names we don't even know but the ones we are just literally passing by in our lives. Lord, help us to be those who stop. Help us to be those whose hearts are moved with compassion, who love unconditionally, who love as you have loved us. Help us to go and do likewise, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.